the whole idea of Scientology is you do drills that, that will stop you from feeling. You're learning not to respond, not to have emotional reactions. And with Scientologists, you're losing your own sense of self. Scientology is inducing narcissism. Welcome to yet another episode of On The Edge with Andrew Gold. Today I've got John Atak, a regular on the show. People like hearing him talk about things and today we're going to talk, he's an ex-Scientologist I should say, and he talks today about the craziest parts of the Scientology folklore, I suppose you would call it. People are always asking, what do Scientologists actually believe? And that will be the name of this episode because it's pretty mad and crazy and there was even moments in this interview when I started thinking, God, was this all just a joke, Scientology? How, how could he have a thing called arse lickers? Um, which, which I hope um, uh, non-Brits Brits realise, you know, arse is how we say ass. Um, arse lickers is, is, is the name of one of the things John's going to talk about to do with Scientology. So do go check out John's uh, YouTube channel, get his book, uh, A Piece of Blue Sky. And as I say, lots of, as I always say, lots of big episodes coming out. But now you're on the edge of Scientology's Craziest Beliefs with John Atak. I'm talking with ex-Scientologist and expert on cults and authoritarianism, John Atak. John, we're going to get into some very weird and crazy and scary territory today. Mm. So everybody bear in mind things are going to start weird and get a lot more shocking and insane and weird as this goes on. But first, let's start with a little summary of the very basic principles of Scientology with reference, please, John, to galactic overlord Xenu and body thetans. Galactic overlords in it. See, this is the popular stuff, isn't it? Xenu and the body thetans. They, they were a backing band to Disaster Area, I think, who were, of course, uh, Douglas Adams' band. Um, 75 million years ago, in this sector of the galaxy, the Prince Zunu rounded up the populations of 176 planets and brought them to Tigiak, which is where we live, the Earth, Tigiak. And uh, he blew them up in um, volcanoes on the Canary Islands and Hawaii, which didn't actually exist 75 million years ago. Slight problem with the story there. They erupted <laughs> about 9 million years ago. And uh, then he collected them all on electronic ribbons, eh, clustered them together and gave them 36 days of implanting, which were curiously images of 1966, which is when when it was written so they had the dc-8 airplane bringing in these boxes of clustered body thetans everybody on earth today is a composite of you know, thousands even millions of body thetans little clustered spirits and if you you know hear this material according to ron hubbard you'll die within two days <laughs> sorry about that Sorry, Andrew. It's quite a scary thing to hear on YouTube, isn't it? Yeah. and It's like the ring. It, exactly. And then he wrote a, a script called Revolt in the Stars, and it is fairly revolting, which John Travolta um, has been trying to get produced all of these years, which is actually the content of OT3, the, this wonderful level, operating Thetan level three. So Ron Hubbard said, it'll kill you within two days. And then he wanted to make a movie of it. It's like, hmm... Not a, not really such a humanitarian. Murderer. 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 Mass murderer. And that's why there's no one alive on Earth, because in 1973, a man called Robert Kaufman published a book called Inside Scientology with the OT3 materials in it. He was the first. People have said it was me. It's not true. It was him. Ah, uh, I see. So let me get this straight, and I'm just summarising in, in my... I, I just trying to make sure I, I know what's going on here. He's got all these millions of people, Lord Zenu did, from all different kinds of planets because of overpopulation, I believe. That's what was going on. Yes, that's right. Um, You've been studying the materials, I can see. <laughs> and, and for some reason took them to Tigiak, which was his name for Earth, millions of years ago, before humans and things were here, th and threw them in volcanoes. So th what I never got was was why why was there not volcanoes and other planets he could throw people into? God, that's a good question. Well, he was locked in a, an electronic mountain trap, and um, some people think he got out and was reborn as Lafayette Ronald Hubbard. Um, but, you know, why? it's not even clear whether they were... It, it appears from illustrations, which are on the book covers of Scientology uh, books, that 
the um, they they were boxed before they were brought here. So the spirits were somehow extracted from the bodies and then they're put in nice little boxes, very uniform, and dropped into these volcanoes, which, as I say, didn't exist at the time. Um, and then you got 36 days of implanting with images. So, for example, according to Scientology, uh, according to Ron Hubbard, Christianity is an implant. Christ never existed, according to Hubbard. Heaven was an implant. He wrote a, a bulletin about it called Heaven, saying, I have been to heaven. And he said it was um, like bush gardens, and um, which I th I'm not really, which I think was the L.A. bush gardens. I'm not sure, but it was like a you know a cheap tacky right. place, you know, according to Hubbard. And our whole civilization was implanted at that time, and tough luck, basically. Um, I just because the implanting, so that is that these these bodies. They were taken to like movie theaters, weren't they? And 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 incepted is another word, I suppose, with ideas about religions that we now, well, many people worship today, Christianity and the Abrahamic religions and things like that. And and that's why we believe in Christianity and stuff like that because Scientology. But who was doing the th who? Why why was this happening? According to why were there movie theaters telling us about Christianity and and making the body thetans believe in Christianity? Oh, to keep us enslaved. So, so that we would uh, never think for ourselves uh, until Ron Hubbard came along and told us what to think. Oh, so it was, <laughs> so it was Zenu who was setting up the movie theatres for the mm -hmm. body thetans that had escaped from the volcanoes after he'd thrown people into them. Yeah, and it, it becomes more confusing because Ron Hubbard couldn't decide whether he was called Zenu or Zemu, and used both both names. So that could be where the problem really begins. You also, of course, go back to the beginning of this universe. Um, which Hubbard finally dated at one and a quarter quadrillion years ago. Now, at the moment, oh, it, it is believed because of the background microwave radiation that, that, that we're in a galaxy, sorry, we're in a universe that is 13.8 billion years old. So he's multiplying that by a thousand to get to a trillion and by another thousand. So this is a very big number. You've been around for a very long time, Andrew. Yeah, well, as a, as a body thetan, is that right? Well, as a Thetan, the idea is that, that, that the individual is, is a Thetan. He originally used the term Theta body. And um, he's like, this is not like the spirit or the soul. This is who you are. You are the Thetan. You are not the body. And the whole purpose of Scientology, if we want to get crazy, is to get you out of your body, to get you out of your head, to get you out of your mind. And... That, let's wind back to the very beginning. It's February 1938. I'm sure you remember it well. Ron Hubbard goes to have his wisdom teeth pulled out and he's given nitrous oxide, which has just been banned by the UK government about bloody time too, frankly. There were a lot of nitrous oxide clubs in the 19th century. It was really great to get a balloon full of it and trip out on it. So he's given this for a dental extraction and he claimed that for eight minutes he was dead. And while he was dead, he was outside of his body and he was shown, and it's not my word, it's his. I would have said buffet, but he says a smorgasbord of knowledge. And yeah. then he was told, some, some voice said, oh, no, he's not meant to be here yet. And back he was in the dentist's chair. That is everything that he strived for in Scientology, which was to be three feet back of your head. Now... Can you imagine driving a car if you were three feet back of your head? It's not a good idea, is it? It'd be quite dangerous. So the whole aim of Scientology is to get somebody so they can be outside their body. Let, let's give you... This is a line from a book that, that went out of print. There are a lot of Scientology books that had alterations over the years. So this is from a, an ancient and original copy. I've, I've got it right here of this... This little book here, Scientology 8.80, where 8 is because he couldn't put the infinity symbol the right way up. So he meant infinity, which is achieved by reducing infinity to nothing. That didn't make sense, did it? But So it says, with this book, the ability to make one's body old or young at will, the ability to heal the ill without physical contact, the ability to cure the insane and incapacitated is set forth. Now, because I knew I was going to be talking to you today, I actually read this book. In fact, I've had to read four Scientology books to do this today. And I want you to know that in the last 40 wow. years, the only time I've read a Scientology book, because I annotated them pretty carefully when I was involved, was to talk about the history of man, 
with Mike Rinder, which is on my channel. And is, we, we laughed our way through about two hours about that. So the idea, he claimed you could cure leukemia, you could cure cancer, you could raise the dead. It didn't work for him when he died, obviously. And he, As far he, as we know. Well, I think we'd have seen him by now. I mean, he was a big loudmouth. So he, he's been dead since 1986. And he's only meant to get 21 years off before coming back and being back in the sea organisation. That's, that's your time off. And he hasn't come back. Unless, of course, David Miscavige has killed him. You know, that he came back and Miscavige has, has got to him. Or maybe he's now one of David Miscavige's body thetans. That's also possible. Or maybe David Miscavige is one of his body thetans. It's all very confusing. Um, so, and, and his claims about what he'd achieved and what he'd done, he, he says at the end of 80,000 hours of investigation, this is in another book, 8,008, 8, he liked the, the eights and zeros, um, so I worked that out. 80,000 hours of investigation is 40 years at 40 hours a week. And you get two weeks a year off. Um, and the lecture was given in 1953 when Hubbard was 42. So he'd started his research and done it for 40 hours a week since he was two years old. At which point, as we've heard elsewhere, he became a blood brother of the Blackfoot Bakuni people. Um, was taken in as you know a brave a, a fighter at the age of two right. or four or six depending on which of his accounts <laughs> you read um yeah so he also says in another book uh, this book is a summation if brief of the results of fifty thousand years of thinking men their materials researched and capped by a quarter of a century, not 40 years, of original search by L. Ron Hubbard have brought the humanities so long outdistanced by the exact sciences into a state of equality, if not superiority, to physics, chemistry and mathematics. What has been attempted by a thousand universities and foundations at a cost of billions has been completed quietly here. This is how life works. This is how you change men and women and children for the better. The use or neglect of this material may well determine the use or neglect of the atomic bomb by man. Well, I don't know what any of it means. It means he's the cleverest bloke who ever lived and you ought to give him your money. But this is the weird thing about Scientology, because obviously Nixium came about recently. It didn't do so well because they ended up in prison within a few years, whereas Scientology has gone a bit longer than mm -hmm. that. Um, but they took a lot of the principles. It still exists, though. It still still exists. Nixium still going. Nixium is still out there. Om Shinrikyo is still out there. Yeah, there are still believers. Oh, wow. OK, well, well, this is what I was... Even though Keith Raniere is serving 120 years in jail. Right. Yeah, and Alison Mack as well was was there's a Smallville actress was, was serving a few years. I think she's out now, but uh, yep. I, I don't think she's back with Nixium. I, I would I would be surprised. But but this this is the thing. So with Nixium, they didn't really have a folklore, so they didn't have all of this like wacky sci-fi galactic mm. overlords, and it still hooks people in, which makes me wonder. Is the whole folklore stuff actually necessary to be a con man and have people join your cult? No. Um, in short, with, with Nixium, it, it is fundamentally a reworking of Scientology. You have a guy who's been running a multi-level marketing scam, which is a serious form of cult, which has gone bankrupt and fallen apart. And he then starts this group where, of course, they brand his initials onto the side of the pubic mound of women in the group called Jeunesse, um, Sarah Edmondson's. Um, book about this is amazing and really scary and we've got seduced in the vow these two really good sets of documentaries about it but no I, I don't think you need a folklore but I think if you want to persist a cosmology a mythology does become necessary and the Hubbard mythology because he just kept pouring this information out and he later on said everything I've said is true you can't cancel any of it even where one piece contradicts another, you can't say that the more recent piece is accurate. So you're stuck with these things. So, for example, among the wisdoms that, that he shared uh, were about the fourth and fifth invader forces. I never found out who the first, second and third invader forces were. But the fourth and fifth invader forces are perched, ready to invade the Earth. One of them lives on Mars, where the mean temperature, according to NASA, is... Um, minus 65 degrees centigrade for any any 
anybody who uses Fahrenheit, that's 85 degrees, oh, sorry, minus 85 degrees Fahrenheit. So there are people living on Mars. Elon Musk is going to go and join them. But Venus, one of the invader forces on Venus, I think it's the fourth, and that's at minus 800, sorry, it's, that's a plus 867 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 464 degrees centigrade. So these people are pretty hot and they're going to come and get us, according to Ron Hubbard. Wow. Who we should trust and believe. Yeah. When do you learn about that in Scientology? Well, you don't anymore. That's the, the wild thing that, that he wrote all of this crap in the 50s. And when you're on the courses, you have to read these books, but you don't do anything with the stuff in them. And so people read History of Man, you know, where you're told that we evolved from clams, which he calls the boo-hoo or the grim weeper. And apparently the reason we cry is because we used to be shell creatures, bivalves that had to expel seawater. And, and the reason that people smoke is because they're frightened of volcanoes. And <laughs> Hubbard would have known because he smoked 100 cigarettes a day. Wow. What a, an imagination he has had. Yeah, but, but he didn't really, because when you come back to it, if you look at the invention, of, he lost Dianetics. He sold it because he was being sued by the New Jersey Medical Association for practicing medicine without a license, for making all these claims of cure. And so he stepped aside and for a dollar sold all of the rights to Dianetics and his book Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, to a man called Don Purcell, who was an oil man in Wichita, Kansas. And Purcell managed to buy everything back for, I think, $800 from the bankruptcy court. And Hubbard's left with nothing. He, he hasn't got Dianetics anymore. So in February 52, he invents Scientology, gets an Alistair Crowley textbook and starts reeling out these ideas. When you look backwards over the half a million or more words of Scientology, this guy's in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most prolific author of all time, Right. And you're more garbage than anybody's written. And you look back over this stuff, and he actually only has about 10 or 20 ideas. But he keeps repackaging them and, you know, give, using different words for them. And then it's every six months is, I found it. I finally found the thing that'll do everything, that'll work. And then six months later, it's, no, now I have really found it. You know, so in 1950, he's saying, I've made 273 clears, you know, these perfectly rational beings that never catch a cold and always have a good time. I've made 273 of them. Then in 1965, he's saying, oh, well, actually, I've just finally got to manage to do this. So he keeps selling the same idea. And from 1952, the idea he's selling is you can leave your body and create effects at will you know cure other people or make planets blow up like disaster area we've already mentioned them um just by your willpower just by your intention and in fact the only two ideas really in scientology are getting out of your body and controlling things via intention and that's about all he's got but he circles round and round and finds some other way of saying it i suppose if you take that to a just if, if it's just used a little bit, right, and you've got a little bit of intention and a little bit of controlling your body, it seems to have, I guess it's attracting people uh, who feel like they don't have any control over their life. And there's a nice idea, especially in the early stages before you've learned about galactic overlords and all sorts of mad things of, you know, almost this Jordan Peterson thing of make your bed, mm. you know, you can control your life, you're in charge. Is that, and that's what Nixium did a little bit as well. I mean, is that what gets people at the beginning and then it starts to become more loopy? I think almost every group has, has its, you know, a single approach. It's a spiritual thing. It's a business thing. It's a therapy thing, whatever. Scientology presses all of the buttons. So you're taught to recruit people by finding out what is ruining their life, their ruin. And whatever that thing is, you say Scientology has a solution to that. And... It, it could be anything, you know, it, it could be shyness, it, it could be a broken heart, it could be, it won't be deficiency in finances because you won't be able to pay for it, you know, or then you join the staff and become a, <laughs> become a slave and work a 90-hour week. But you're always being sold this idea. I mean, when I got involved, I had no, you know, I'd come from a Zen Buddhist background and there's no idea of anything magical. They call anything supernatural, Gedo Zen. It's a bad thing. It's a waste of time. And so I came to Scientology with no interest in, in the upper levels and all this. I just got a broken heart. 
and and they were promising to fix it and they didn't you know what happened was that time went by and I realised it would have been a very bad idea to spend any more time with the young lady in question so it was all fine but that whatever it is you want you're promised and I think Hubbard's great trick was saying you're a god and I can reveal you know release your godly powers and uh you know which made him a god maker of course and ultimately you you kind of come to believe that I, it's you know it's embarrassing i was involved in scientology for nine years though i wasn't enslaved i didn't work for them i really did believe in it and looking back it's sort of oh no <laughs> you know santa claus doesn't exist what can i say <laughs> hey it's andrew if you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. <laughs> How can you make us understand then what it is to believe that you're sort of a god, but without believing in magical powers then? Well, I came to believe in them. And and part of that was the prestige, the authority that Hubbard put forward. He He said he'd been an explorer. He said he was a nuclear physicist. He said he'd studied with gurus in India, China, Tibet and Mongolia in one place. And that he was a wounded war hero who'd cured his war wounds with the psychotherapy. None of the above is true. You know, he was an explorer. OK, he, he ran the Caribbean motion picture expedition. And the, there are articles he wrote about it which said it was it was a bust. It completely failed. We didn't get to any of our targets. We didn't do anything. It, you know, his own words. He he went to Alaska to plot the waterways and spent six months stranded waiting for new parts for his boat. But this becomes the Alaska Radio Experimental Expedition. Um, and, and, you know, we know he's in Ketchikan because he was writing for the local newspapers and appearing on the local radio for six months. Uh, nuclear physicist, well, by his own admission, he, he was thrown out of George Washington University for deficiency of scholarship, having got a grade F, the lowest grade possible, a fail grade, in atomic and molecular physics. He never studied nuclear physics, which is not the same thing. But he failed his physics course. He failed his maths course. And he 
talks about being a civil engineer and having a degree in that. It's all nonsense. But when you're presented with this, this great man, he studied with gurus. You know, he's an explorer. He's, he's, he's a nuclear physicist. And he's brought together the wisdom, the ancient wisdom of the East with modern science. And it's none of it true. He didn't know what he was talking about. There's this great testimony by this guy called Brown McKee. And he was 24 years in Scientology. And he said, I was a physicist, so I knew that everything he said about physics was nonsense. But I was really interested in what he said about Buddhism. And I came from Buddhism, and I had to laugh when I read this, because like, I knew everything he was saying about Buddhism was nonsense. Yeah, there's no depth of study in the man at all. He'd, he'd just read the Reader's Digest or the boy's own book of something and you know, tell you about it and what you ought to believe about it. This, I'm, I'm intrigued then, something I've wondered for a while about politicians in general, of, or, and sometimes just celebrities or people who've uh, had huge success in their life. And I've had friends say, oh, well, he's obviously or she's obviously very smart to get to that position in the first place. And I now wonder, well, is that necessarily the case? Or is it that if you are just bullshit enough and confident enough and psychopathic enough, perhaps, or you just don't care enough to lie and just lie and lie and lie, you can actually really climb the ranks in whatever you're doing. Yeah, I, I, I think it's more exactly narcissistic than, than psychopathic, though, though they are close relatives in some ways. Mm. But there are people who, um, they have no sense of love. They have no sense of care for other people. And so sociopath, psychopath, narcissist. And with narcissists, they, they need to be adulated. They need people to love them, to tell them how wonderful they are, because otherwise they collapse. Otherwise their life has no meaning. And we see, and some of them are malignant. Some of them are really horrifically nasty people. But others of them are, are kind of, they're actually quite benevolent. So you look at somebody like David Bowie. By his own conversation, you know, he wrote the whole major Tom thing, Space Oddity. That's about him how isolated he felt. His parents didn't love him. He didn't have any friends. And when you look at his early, you know, film of him singing Chim Chimini, Chim Chimini, Chim Chim Chiri, he would desperate to be famous. And I get the sense that somewhere after the cocaine years of heroes in the 70s, he grew up and he developed a self and he didn't need this. But I think an awful lot of people in show business they they have to be adulated. Taylor Swift, if you look at her childhood, she was desperate for people to love her. And that, because she is immensely talented, though not particularly to my liking, she's been successful. But there's that narcissistic drive, which is, I'll die if they don't applaud. Thankfully, this isn't true of everybody that achieves something. There are people who are, you know, get imposter syndrome. They They can't understand why they're so successful. And I've met many successful people who felt that and they're really decent people but Hubbard was somebody who absolutely depended upon adulation I've talked with people who knew him his girlfriend in 1950 Barbara Cloden said that he would spend days in bed crying you know because he, he was a failure and he'd achieved nothing and this is a few months after he's released this great technology that's going to make everybody clear and wonderful then um there's a guy called Jim Ding Kelsey who nursed him in 72, 73. And again, you get this, this story of a man who's really uh, morbidly depressed. Um, I mean, in 1947, he wrote, I wrote a little book uh, called uh, Scientology, the Cult of Greed, and put some of the relevant documents in it. And one of them's a 1947 letter that he wrote, writes, begging for psychiatric treatment. You know, at the time when he's claiming he's researched this method that makes everybody healthy and well. So, you know, he was a, a deeply troubled man with, with all sorts of psychiatric conditions, one of which was, was malignant narcissism. And the people who joined, because we've talked about the person who started it, the people who joined, yourself included, were also troubled. You talked about uh, uh, you were heartbroken at the time. I See, I don't always believe sometimes we say anyone can join a cult or something like that. I think maybe, but it has to usually be following or in a very vulnerable moment. Of course, Stephen Hassan, our mutual friend, he, he joined the Moonies after a heartbreak as well. Um, so so is, that, is that something that 
And because three, three lovely women... Three lovely women turned up in three a... Three lovely women asked him to dinner. Yeah, in a college library. And he was like, oh, well, that doesn't seem unusual. Mm. I better just go for dinner with these three women that have just asked me out. I mean, that's not an, a common occurrence, even for people like you and me, John. So I, 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 he should have seen the signs there, but he was very vulnerable at the time. So is, is, is that it? It's just he was most, 19. Well, there as well. Okay. Well, when you when you join up to these things, I mean, are are, are most people extremely vulnerable at that point? Are there are there different kinds of people who who would join cults? There are, and there are different kinds of vulnerability. The principal vulnerability is transition. That if if there is a change in your life, whether it's negative or positive, your routines are affected, and you become somehow more able or more willing to to take on new routines. So. Uh, the first year at university, the first term, is the most dangerous time for recruitment because you're in a new environment uh, wow. with new people, uh, a new job. You know, somebody at work proposes something to you, and you can be perfectly happy. There can be nothing wrong in your life. You can actually be feeling very good. Um, but things around you have changed, and somehow you, we form new habit patterns. I mean, there's a simple antique idea about brainwashing whatever that may be that you unfreeze somebody you change them and you refreeze them but in simple terms we, we actually are being unfrozen every time we make a transition in our lives so if you know move house um, somebody you love dies something changes in your life the most vulnerable periods will be in your teens because you've learned how to be infatuated with things and you know the, the place I'm headed to, I'm 68 now. So very soon I'll be a dotard. And at that point, I'll be incredibly easy to recruit. <laughs> I, I will try and think about uh, ways to get into your bank account, John. Um, I want to yeah, ask get the about... 10, 10 pounds out of it. I can't wait to do mm. that. Um, you told me there was something about the peoples of Markab and... Now, it can't really be called this, and this is getting ridiculous, so I'll take a brief aside to just say now, please do follow John's channel in the links below and hit like on this video so more people can know about the ridiculousness that is Scientology mm. and be warned against please it. Please do. Lick us. Yeah, Arslick us. There, there's a lecture where L. Ron Hubbard, he's just got back from England where he's heard this expression, Arslick us. And he, he tells the... And I've actually heard the lecture where he does this because he recorded most of his lectures. And he tells the assembled American audience that they've all had lives on Ars Lycus. And um, so this is one of many places, you know, I mean, if you've been around for one and a quarter quadrillion years, you've traveled a bit. And it's kind of weird in Scientology, they only actually have half a dozen or so places that he talks about. But the other one is Markab. And in 1982, a huge bloke, six foot four, called Captain Bill Robertson, was thrown out of Scientology. Now, Bill really was a captain. He had ship's papers because um, he'd learned to do that because Ron needed somebody who could. And Hubbard was the Commodore of Scientology. His wife, Mary Sue, who went to prison, of course, was the Deputy Commodore. And Captain Bill was the second Deputy Commodore of Scientology. And then he was bounced out in 1982. And he started receiving telepathic messages from L. Ron Hubbard, who had apparently died and was on the mothership going around the planet. And he wrote down these, these messages and called them the Sector Operations Bulletins, or SOBs, um, which is probably appropriate. And in these things, he basically... And I met Bill. I, I, for about eight months, he lived in East Grinstead, where I was living in you know south of London. And he used to come around frequently because... I, having left Scientology and helped to create the independent Scientology movement, the free zone or whatever you want to call it, I pretty soon started thinking, Ron Hubbard was a con man. Oh dear, he was a liar. And I could see he was a liar because he contradicted himself. You know, he'd, I was crippled and blinded at the end of World War II, for example, he says in one place. And then in another place, he said, well, I'd fallen down a ship's ladder and hurt myself and and uh, the flash of a gun had harmed my eyes and that was all he got that that so he changed his story you know he, he crippled and blind at the end of the war he also in another place said that july 25th 45 just end of the wars august 14th 15th he went down to hollywood and beat up three petty officers which for somebody who's crippled so i'd come to this point where i just didn't 
didn't believe the man anymore and I decided you couldn't believe any of it. Captain Bill kept coming round every week or two, desperate to get me back. So I spent a lot of time with him. And Bill put forward the idea, and you may not have known this, um, you know, Dave Grusha's recent congressional hearings, probably, you know, about the aliens, aliens. being among us. Aliens. Bill said that 200,000 aliens from the system of Markab, the Markabians, had arrived in Switzerland and were already here. This is in 1982, so 40 years. They, they must have proliferated since then. And they used Transcendental Meditation and the Freemasons as their front groups. And at some point in the 1980s, they would take over the world. And uh, thankfully, I personally stopped that from happening, you know, um, by wishing that they wouldn't, you know, postulating, as, as Aaron Hubbard would say. Yeah. So Bill... Bill was, we have to talk about Bill. There's a whole video about him on my channel called The Craziest Scientologist. Bill lived with a, a good friend of mine for eight months. And after eight months, she came around. She was a charming, delightful French woman. And she said, John, we have never had sex. He's lived with you for eight months and we all thought you were his girlfriend. He said, no, on a Saturday, we go to an outsized women's clothing shop and he points out the items he wants. And I buy them every night at eight o'clock. He dresses up in he's six foot four, this guy, big hairy guy. Every night at eight o'clock, he dresses in a ball gown and high heels and sings songs to the Elron Hubbard of the time of Zenu. So and you look to these sector operations bulletins what? and they're signed Astar Parmegian, which I thought was a kind of cheese from the stars or something. And the character in Revolt in the Stars, the play about OT3, the nightclub singer is called Astar Parmegian, and the Elron Hubbard character is called Elron Elray. And so Bill would sing these songs. He is the founder of the Free Zone, the Ronzorg, the contemporary independent Scientology movement, much of it. There are a lot of people who probably who, who aren't that keen on him. But he was a huge driving force with this idea that, you know... Um, by I think 1986 is I knew him in 83 84 by 1986 the world would have been taken over and uh, maybe it was maybe this guy's a lunatic yeah I I I talked with somebody who'd worked with him very early on after I'd met him and I said well, what about Captain Bill what do you think of him and he just looked at me and said he's bananas <laughs> And uh, he, he had people up on the roof when he was running the Los Angeles organization looking for the, the spaceships. I thought, the, I thought the, the craziest part of that story was going to just be that it was a place called Arse Lickers, which reminded me of Biggest Dickers or something yeah. from Monty Python, uh, this sort of Arse Lickers. And what were you saying just before, I didn't want to interrupt you in flow, that he heard people saying someone's like an arse licker what, in England. He heard that phrase yeah. and then applied it to one of the like, groups of people in, in well, Scientology. Well, it was, it was, there, there are lots of kind of schoolboy jokes in Scientology places where Hubbard, you know, is seeing how far he can push it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a, there are a group of uh, processes called, called um, the training routines, and there are what are called the upper indoctrination training routines. I remember being worried about that word indoctrination, which are training routines six, <laughs> seven, eight, and nine. Eight is kind of famous that, that there's a video that i did with steve hassan on my channel when we, we did a seminar in toronto and we deconstruct some of the scientology techniques showing that they are straightforward hypnosis they're ways of getting people into a euphoric blissed out state so you can take more money from them and um it, it kind of yeah they become kind of junkies where, where they want more of it but but the story behind this is when these things were originally released they they were released by and the, the bulletin was signed L. Ron Hubbard Jr. L. Ron Hubbard's son developed these things. He left in nineteen fifty nine because his dad refused to give him enough money to keep his kids fundamentally. He just couldn't exist on what he was being given. But for seven years he'd worked with his dad and he said these training routines six to nine. They what happened was one day they had some rowdy students. Because every few months they'd have an advanced clinical course, which cost you $500 to attend. And they had some rowdy students. And so his dad said, work out something to control them. And these drills were devised. And they are indeed. And they quite straightforwardly say, this is how to control people. 
what's called in infinite control or tone 40, the ability to control people. And they're still drilled in them. And you grab hold of somebody and move them. You make them do something, something that's, you know, the Me Too movement has come along now. And we're not meant to touch people we don't know, which I think is fair enough, personally. Not even get in their space. But in Scientology, you get them and you march them around the room. You also have the great uh, training routine eight where you shout at an ashtray, which uh, you can see on the video that we did. And we have Christian Cherko and Chris Shelton actually doing this drill to famous people. So, Oh, wow. Very Matilda. Yeah, yeah. I, I, if Roald Dahl and, and Hubbard put together, what a thought, eh? You know, that, that would have been truly dangerous. To quite horrible people by by all accounts yeah yeah so um this is the weird thing then if he's putting in silly jokes right euphemisms and whatnot then it, it suggests as you say a con man but you've we've spoken before about this i think that there was a great deal of cognitive dissonance because he did seem to also be a true believer of his own complete nonsense yeah the, and and i think that's because he had he was bipolar so he had the manic depressive tendency. So he would get really high. He'd go, I've cracked it at last. You know, I'm completely healed. I, you know, I can do anything. And, you know, so in his first book in 1950, he'd cured asthma. He'd cured bursitis, which I'd never heard of, which is a lubricating sort of gland. Um, he'd cured uh, short-sightedness, not long-sightedness. All things he suffered from and all things he suffered from for the rest of his life. So he'd get high, as people do when they have a manic incident, and really believe in himself. And then he'd get low. And at the end of his life, there's this guy, Sarge Fouth, who's um, Lawrence Wright's excellent book, Going Clear. Um, he interviews Sarge Fouth. And at the very end of his life, Hubbard's saying, build me a, a, an e-meter, this ridiculous device, a lie detector they use, um, that, that will kill me. I fail completely. I, I've, I've not achieved anything. So he would vacillate between these points of absolute arrogant self-belief and complete collapse, which is also quite typical of narcissists. Mm. It, just to have a minute in his head, in his head would just be such a bizarre, an alien experience for most people, just to know what it is to believe half of these things, to be happy to con everybody else, just to get some adulation and some money. Really bizarre. You mentioned the e-meter. Mm. Um, I was having a good chat with Mark Headley before, uh, the ex-Scientologist, um, and he was doing e-meter stuff, auditing, mm. with Tom Cruise. Yeah. Tom Cruise was sort of doing it on him, and he fell asleep. Now, that's understandable because Scientologists are made to work so hard they don't, they don't really sleep. What, what, is, what is the purpose of – what is Tom Cruise, when he sat there doing the auditing on Mark – now, ideally, Mark stays awake. But what is Tom trying to get from this? And what is Tom believing in this moment? Well, I, I think, again, that, that the whole idea of, of Scientology is to make, make you feel like Aaron Hubbard, to get you into Aaron Hubbard's head, not you know, get you out of your own head and into his. So you do drills that, that will stop you from feeling. Uh, training The early training routines, training routine zero, training routine zero, bull bait, you're learning not to respond, not to have emotional reactions. You then drill the emotional tone scale over and over until you can exhibit any emotion at will. And it's, it's rather like when, when I heard an interview about uh, Peter Sellers, uh, who Stanley Kubrick called the greatest actor in the world, um, that Sellers said, I have no self. I, I just, and with Scientologists, you, you're losing your own sense of self and learning to pretend these emotional states. And then it's a matter of the, the, the desperate need, which you see in so many cults. When somebody enters a cult, they're infatuated, they get euphoric, they get high, they've got the, the secrets to the universe. After six to 18 months, when they're trying to recruit you and tell you how much Jesus or whoever loves you, you'll see that they're desperate. They no longer believe. They want you to confirm their belief. They want you to come back and confirm that belief. And so that Scientology is inducing narcissism. It's destroying and eroding compassion. The, the state is called no sympathy. In Scientology, you shouldn't sympathize with anybody. Um, I've often talked to people who are second generation and said, you know, when you fell over and grazed your knee, did your mum say they're there? 
and there no absolute silence no emotional contact and i think it's very damaging to children not to be comforted um so it's to create this kind of hard selfish self-righteous um sense of being that that and, and i think that's typical of any cult that that you clone the cult leader but what you're cloning is either your idea of them as a hero so you're trying to be that or what they really are and what happened with david miscavige is he he cloned Fron hubbard he you know the sadism the the horrific control the damage that he inflicts on people i mean i um i don't think she'd mind my, my friend who was stacy young when i met her stacy brooks um she's stacy old now oh sorry okay she was stacy minton for a while I, I don't know but um not so young um wonderful wonderful smart lovely woman when she was working for david miscavige she had an ectopic pregnancy a pregnancy in, in one of her tubes and when she actually got to the doctors there was an explosion of blood and the surgeon said you should have been dead a month ago and that was you know miscavige could see that she was in absolute agony for you know a couple of months and he just forced her to do her job as, as you say to not sleep at all which you know we public scientologists were allowed to sleep but if you were in the the staff then yeah you were sleep deprived you were bullied shouted at harassed in what is meant to be this ideal organization you know it's it's just criminal it's absurd so what what is tom trying to get out of um mark headley in this room he's well in this case he's doing his training as an auditor so that he can be regarded as somebody who's trained in scientology which is a, you know there's a kind of there's very much a status thing you know how how far you've trained how how high up the bridge you've got i did 25 of the then 27 levels of the bridge i am officially an operating thetan level five and among scientologists that that has tremendous status in, in fact um the last time i was in a scientology organization i was in chicago doing a documentary and these guys said oh go and stand by the window of, of the organization i'm like i don't really want to do this he said, look we'll put a Levelia mic on you and you can go and just stand by the window and i'm stood there and they're over the street filming across the street filming and this voice says would you like to come in and it was like oh, i couldn't help it so so i went inside and of course i still got the mic on these two guys come bombing, herring out past me. And I have no idea what's going on, which is my general state of mind anyway. And this woman says, do you know anything about Scientology? And I said, yeah, I'm OT5. And she went, oh, wow, everybody, we've got an OT5 in here. And so a dozen staff members appear and they're all standing there. It was just they came out of nowhere. And the next thing I said was, she said, when are you going down to Florida to do six and seven? I said, I'm not going there. It's, bull <laughs> it's bullshit. <laughs> and then I realized who the two guys who'd run out were. They were the Office of Special Affairs bullies who dealt with security. So they got nobody there who knew what to do. <laughs> so they just all, oh, okay. Well, did they go and get security to get you out? They'd run off. Because they'd seen the cameraman across the street and they were chasing the cameraman down the street. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, so you were OT5. It was a big, it was a big deal. It's, it's, it, is, it does seem like a status thing, doesn't it? And, and, and yet even, even among ex... I, no one will admit this to me of all the ex-Scientologist friends I've got, but it feels like even that, if you're going to be an expert about the cult, there has to be some sort of status involved in, in how far up in the rankings you were. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. If, it... it, it a friend of mine a couple of years ago was saying that she was really pleased that she'd been invited to go on holiday with former members of the Commodore's Messenger organization. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's great. And it is, it is fascinating that, that years afterwards, people still feel they have a status that comes from having studied complete rubbish for years. You know, I, you know, if I have any status, I'm a little bit different. There are a lot of ex-Scientologists. I mean, Mark Headley's Blown for Good is one of the funniest books ever written. It has some classic moments in it. Um, I've been promoting it for years. I haven't been able to talk to him yet. I, he won't come on my show, but never mind. But 
It's one of more than a hundred ex-member books, and these are autobiographies, and they're very valuable. But to be a historian of the subject, to actually dig out all of the information, is a quite different thing. And I think there's there's me, there's probably Chris Shelton, Tony Ortega, Chris Owen. There aren't many people that have really dug into the documents and seen how it fits together. Beyond that, understanding the psychology involved, because as you know my study for 30 years has, has been how do people take control over other people and why do we let human predators run our society um, and so the psychological mechanisms people can leave Scientology and I had a guy who'd been housebound for 20 years and came to me and Ron Hubbard had said he was a suppressive person and so he didn't want to hurt anybody so he'd spent 20 years without leaving the house and it took an afternoon to deal with that and i was furious you know usually it doesn't make me angry and but the thought this then i realized that almost everyone that leaves scientology is stuck they can't they still think because it's such a saturating philosophy so they may not talk about the overt motivator sequence anymore but they will talk about karma without ever having studied Hindu or Buddhist texts on karma vipaka, action and reaction, they'll still, oh yeah, what goes around comes around. They, they'll still believe in past lives, you know, in reincarnation. Again, without realizing that in the Hindu and Buddhist system that, that gives us these things, this is called the fear of the eternal return. It's not a good thing. Whereas Scientologists are like, yeah, I'll do that in my next lifetime. So their view of the world is false. And it's deep. It, it saturates. The awful thing is, yes, it takes just an afternoon to get somebody out of it. And I keep offering to the various celebrities and people who've come out of Scientology to, free of charge, spend the afternoon with them. Nobody has ever taken me up on that. You know, they, you don't want to let go of it because you believe it's true. And that's the trap that Hubbard's got you to believe that his view of the world is the truth. And it is so far from the truth. It's just incomprehensible garbage. And he was a very ill man through most of his life. He was a very ill man and utterly selfish, which is, I mean, I think the thing that really broke it for me was when I realized how angry he was, when I realized that he screamed and shouted almost on a daily basis. I've had Janice Gillum Grady on, on my show, who was one of the first messengers on the ship. She was 12 years old. Her parents were sent away. She wasn't really allowed to see them. She didn't get an education. She's a very smart woman. And so she's managed to become educated. But she worked for Hubbard. And the picture of, of her first book, Commodore's Messenger, is a photograph of Ron Hubbard grinning his head off with her walking behind him, obviously just having been yelled at. And... Every day he would get you know, within a few inches of somebody and scream at them how degraded they were, how useless they were. And you sort of going, this is a guy who said he was healing trauma. This is where it started, that he'd sort out all of your trauma that you'd experienced. Now he's inflicting it, you know, throwing people overboard from, from his ship. From a, this is higher than the high diving board. People who couldn't swim, people were blindfolded, their ankles were tied, and it was in Corfu Harbour, most of it, where the other ships, of course, had all let out their human sewage. So he's throwing people into that, and you kind of go, and this is the great benefactor who's the, the final Buddha, the Buddha who will save all of mankind, as he claimed in a book called Hymn of Asia. So everything is reversed, and unfortunately, people have to be able to challenge his ideas and say, you know, they're not actually true. And again, unfortunately, therapists tend to say, well, what happened to you in your childhood or, or, or whatever, without realizing that this cultic shell has been built, that everything you think about is filtered through the ideas of Aaron Hubbard, which have penetrated your mind. Alien invasion, indeed. Some of those, um, we were talking about you being at OT5. It's very high up. That's what Claire Headley's at as well. But very few people who left Scientology 
are, are quite as high as that. It's higher than it, it seems for anyone who doesn't know the OTs, the operating thetan levels. These are the, the levels of knowledge. Often you have to put a lot of money in to, to, and, mm. and take a lot of exams, I think, to, to get higher up. Those celebrities like Tom Cruise, he's at OT8. I don't know what John Travolta is, but I think Kirsty Alley was at 8 as well. Do they know more than you about Scientology? Nobody knows more than me about Scientology, Andrew. <laughs> I've spent 50 years studying it, and not within the restrictions of what they're allowed to tell you. But, you know, I've, I interviewed 150 people for my book, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, interviewed or read testimony or, or accounts they'd written. Um, I came to know quite a number of the famous Scientologists, and... It was very interesting that Hubbard had managed to to keep things hidden um, so that often, uh, even in a married couple, I was sometimes able to tell one person in the marriage what had happened with the other person that they didn't know about, um, it, all of these compartments. So in terms of knowing the technology of Scientology, no, I know what's on OT8. I, I know what's on all of the techniques of Scientology and it's it's a nonsense it it's they're the same hypnotic ideas when steve hassan first saw training routine zero he said this is the most overt use of hypnosis in any cult and when somebody of steve's breadth of knowledge says that and he is a fully trained ericksonian hypnotherapist so he understands what he's talking about you know you're in trouble and scientology is just a rag bag of ideas taken from alistair crowley uh, that are then Hubbard's own personal library had so many of these little uh, hypnosis books on all the cheap texts he recommended some of them early on um, it's a book called Hypnotism Comes of Age by Wolf and Rosenthal that he recommended there's another one called 25 Lessons in Hypnotism and these were the materials he used I, I wrote a paper called Never Believe a Hypnotist which is online somewhere or other in fact you can actually see on my channel you can see me reading it out i'm not sure why anybody would want to much quicker to read it for yourself but nonetheless it's there and all i did was i took the first two years from his book dynetics in 50 and i checked the indices of every book all of his lectures for words like suggestion reverie which is what he calls the state you enter when you're being audited which is a hypnotist term for a light trance and then there's this revelation in 1951 in a book called Science of Survival. He cancels the original method of Dianetics because it's hypnotic. Then in 1977, it's brought back. And you've even got this mention of the fluttering of the eyelids as the person goes into the reverie state. So he knew what he was doing. And he describes it, you know, my paper takes it apart and shows just how well he knew what he was doing. You're putting people to, into a, an enthusiastic state. You, you're making them feel euphoric. Mm. You know, the end of almost any auditing session is when you have very good indicators. It means, yeah, wow, I feel fantastic. Now, feeling fantastic doesn't actually improve your relationships, doesn't get you a better job, doesn't get you into a nice house like the one you're living in now. Um, it, it's just feeling fantastic. And... I don't really think that cocaine is, is a good idea, but it's a lot cheaper than Scientology, and it's a lot easier to cure as an addiction than Scientology. It's a temporary buzz, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, well, that's what gets you in, isn't it? It's, I think we are, as humans, we've got these sort of dopamine receptors in our brains. We'll keep tapping them uh, mm. until we starve or lose all our money or whatever it might mm. be, just like mice that I think have done that where they just didn't eat because they just kept tapping the dopamine receptor in their brains it is uh, a scary thing and it's the way i suppose to get humans to to comply um so 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 then just do you think those people but i guess there's these celebrities at ot8 ot7 all that stuff is it a little bit like a college diploma do you think like you know you know when they give the celebrities a college diploma and you know like oh you're now an honorary graduate do you think like tom cruise has he studied all of these things there i, I interviewed this guy called don rogers who was with hubbard for the first uh, four years and he was on the board of every Hubbard Foundation and he said the day that we opened the doors of the Elizabeth New Jersey Foundation the first foundation in April 1950 just before he opened the doors Ron Hubbard turned to him and he said let's sell these people a piece of blue sky and Don explained that 
Hubbard had got all of these ideas of memberships that you could buy. You could be a gold member or a, a platinum member or what have you. And then it started happening in the 1980s, late 70s, 80s. You could give them a quarter of a million dollars and you could become a patron meritorious. And they have lists of them. They had, had this magazine called Impact showing, you know, you give them a million dollars. You know, Nancy Cartwright, I think, says she's given the voice of Bart Simpson. So she's given them $21 million. Leah Remini says in one day she wrote a check for a million dollars. Whoa. And you get a little thing. I, I talked with this, this lovely guy who I felt so sorry for. And he said that they'd said they wanted him to donate, I think it was £35,000 towards a new building they were buying, an ideal organisation. And in return, for all eternity, he would have a car parking space. When I met him, he was working two jobs to pay off the loans he'd taken. And he said he'd be working two jobs for years to pay for that car parking space, which I'm betting they won't give to him now because he's not in Scientology. So unfair. It's supposed to be eternal. So then I guess we can surmise that it is possible that maybe only we, we can only speculate. I don't know that the celebrities are just being given, you know, your OT8 now without having to actually do the work. Oh, the, the, what work? You know, I mean, the, the point is they'll do the course. The course is absolute nonsense. That, that so many it used to be the old OT levels promised you that, that you would be exterior with full perception. You'd be able to leave your body at will and you know, you've got these great statements about it. I was looking at, got my little notes here. Um, hmm. Yeah, when separated from it. the body, the Thetan, from a distance, can correct anything wrong with his own body or other bodies at will. And the way you get them there, in, in case the audience were wondering what incredible secret technique was used, here it is. Ask the pre-clear, the person who's not yet clear, who is still inside his head, to locate the inside of his forehead. You doing this now, Andrew? Ask him to put a pressor beam. I am doing it. A pressor beam, which is a beam that presses against it and push himself out of the back of his head. Have you done that? Supplement this by asking him to reach out through the back of his head and grab the wall with a pulling beam and pull himself out. And that's all you're going to get. Oh, it worked. It's worked. <laughs> so well, I need to have that special beam for it to work, don't I? The pressor beam or whatever. Uh, yeah, you need the pull up the tractor and the pressor beams are the ones you need. Now, that stuff was nineteen fifties. He later kind of drew that back in. He did a whole thing about entities and how we we're all inhabited by all these entities in the fifties and nobody wanted it. So he went, Ah, oh, I know, I'll make it the secret level. And you get the um it's called the sunk cost fallacy, uh, throwing good money after bad. And I saw this so often when I was in Scientology, somebody would take a course and then they'd be desperate to finish the course so they could do the next course because the next one would be the thing that worked for them. I met this guy, uh, Harry Mason. He'd spent $400,000 on the OT5 level, $400,000, and he ended up having a heart attack and being in hospital. And he still believed. He still absolutely believed. So it's Man. it's blue sky. It's just blue sky. And the blue sky is out there and it's free. Yeah, it's free. And they're just getting... Well, that's the name of your, your book, isn't it? A Piece of Blue Sky. Let's sell these people a piece of blue sky, which is still the only history of Scientology. Amazingly. Everyone, people should buy that book firstly. I'll put a link to it below. But also... Um, yeah, this was something that I think it was... We might have discussed before, but Aaron Smith-Levin was telling me that with, with Tom Cruise, they put his donation amounts like up on a big table or like on a, on a screen exactly, or something. Yeah. But they, they only have it at like a million dollars. And it, there's no way he's only given a million dollars. Oh, no. He must have given tens or hundreds of millions. Mm. Hundreds? It, it's possible. I mean, he, he, was, he was the highest paid star in Hollywood at the peak of his career, which is some time ago now, but... Mm. So it would be hundreds of millions. Possibly. So the, the point of it, Aaron thinks, is, is so that people can compete to be above Tom mm. Cruise because of the status of, of donating more than Tom Cruise. Whereas if his was hundreds of millions, you'd just look at it and go, well, I'm not matching that, you know? Yeah, and it, it is so much about how much you've given to Scientology. And, and you think, what an interesting loop to be in. I'm more important than you because I've wasted more money than you have.
It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, have you got your, a new book coming out, John? Well, there, there will be. I'm, I'm negotiating for a, a book about Charles Manson's deep, profound involvement with Scientology, which nobody has talked about in 54 years. And when I first got, I mean, we've done a show here about it. Um, but when I first got hold of this idea, I couldn't understand why people were going, oh, yeah, and he did Scientology. And then off they'd go. And then you find out that, no, there was a lot more than that. The, the methods of control that he used are very, very definitely Scientology. He used Scientology words. He used words that are exclusive to Scientology, like the time track, which is the record of all of your past existences. And I can say confidently that without Scientology, the, the Tate-LaBianca murders and the murder of Gary Hinman and Donald uh, Shea would not have happened. If, if Charles Manson had not encountered Scientology, the Manson family would never have come into being because it was Scientology's techniques that he used. They didn't direct him in any way, nor did Jolly West. I've talked about that elsewhere. But without Scientology, and the, the weird thing is, Hubbard started by trying, in 1946, Black Magic Ceremony, which we talked about, trying to incarnate the Whore of Babylon to bring the Antichrist to Earth. That was Hubbard's starting point in 46. That was where Manson was going. He believed himself to be the incarnation of Jesus and that he was, these were the end days. So there's this weird thing of Scientology bouncing off into this direction, into the book of Revelation, you know. So, yeah, that's what I'm working on. It's, it's crazy. Uh, and, well, so you have to let us know when that's out then. Thank you, John Atak, for coming on the show. He's a, an expert in cults and authoritarianism. He is an ex-Scientologist himself, and he's a fascinating man, so do go check out his YouTube channel and also get his book, A Piece of Blue Sky. I'll see you next time.